morning, we are continuing in our studies through First and Second Samuel, and today we're looking at chapter 17. But by way of reminder, our theme through these books is that of lessons from the kingdom for today. We're looking back at what happened in the, the life of the nation of Israel, but also looking more closely at individuals, King David in particular, though not just him, and seeing, well, what was it that God had for them? What was he showing and teaching them that he has for, for us, for me, for you and I today? Well, last week, Pastor Steve brought us through chapter 16, and things are a mess in Israel, which works well for us in terms of learning because doesn't that so often describe our lives? Messy. We don't always talk about it, but for most of us, it's true. God's word is messy because it's the story of his working in the lives of his people. They needed a lot of help, just like we still do today. It's a story of redemption, of restoration. So, I hope we're all able to, uh, to gather a few lessons, at least, for our own lives in today's message. Absalom, that's David's son, he's, he's managed to overthrow his father's rule. And as the king flees, he's run into a few people. David chose, rather than to see uh, the kingdom split and war come to the capital of Jerusalem, he left of his own accord. He left under, under cover of darkness and, and fled the city. But he's encountered some people along the way, some helpful, some opportunistic, and others not so much, some actually enemies gloating over his pain. Well, if you missed it last week, go to the website or hit the socials and uh, listen to that message and catch up. But Israel is a nation in turmoil and upheaval. The, the beloved but likely absent of late King David is, is fleeing. And you might remember I mentioned that some scholars believe Absalom's ascent corresponded to possible illness in David's life, which is an explanation as to why he was less visible, why there was a void and a vacuum that Absalom was able to fill. It's speculation, but, but probably true. Well, this popular son, Absalom, has staged a coup and is now seizing the capital. And today's chapter records what happens next. But let's pray, and then we'll, we'll step into chapter 17. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, we... we Pray, we ask, and we're anticipating that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts, that, God, you would nourish our souls with, with Lord, this manna, daily bread that we need so desperately. God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us those things that we need, Lord. Please minister to us today, this morning, in this moment, right where we are, God. There's not a person here who's beyond your reach there's no one, Lord, who you're not able to speak to or whose situation you don't understand or care about. Lord, please reveal that. Make it known as, as we walk through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our message this morning is titled, Not So Fast, but as someone pointed out to me this morning, there is a typo. Uh, Pastor Frankie types up the outlines for... No, he doesn't. I'm just kidding. I do it, and somehow it ended up no, so fast, instead of not so fast. Um, so I'm sorry. Just write a little T there. And most of you don't have outlines anyway, so uh, it doesn't matter. But anyhow, it's not so fast. Absalom's in a hurry. Uh, he's in a hurry to establish himself as king over the land. He's already followed um, Ahithophel's Hugh Hefner-esque plan by setting up that tent on top of the palace and going into David's concubines, a symbolic but uh, disgusting and scandalous act asserting his dominance. And no doubt Ahithophel, remember, we'll mention this again, uh, he's the granddaughter of Bathsheba. He is likely trying to stick it again to David as he will continue to in various serious ways by advising Absalom do this thing. The kings of Israel, they didn't do this, but that this was more of a heathen pagan thing. Absalom goes ahead and, and does it to, uh, again, assert dominance and authority. But 
more has to be done. It's not enough to uh, act this out on, on, the, on the palace rooftop. David is still alive, and as such, he poses a threat to Absalom's rule. Moving quickly and decisively seems to be the order of the day. And that's the advice that Absalom's going to get from Ahithophel. But then the brakes are going to get tapped a little bit here. The Lord is going to move on this situation to slow things down for David's sake. It's a good reminder when God is opposing someone or something, it doesn't matter how powerful, smart, uh, cunning, or wise they are, their plans will ultimately fail. Sometimes we get to see that, sometimes not, but in the end, God will have his way. So we're going to start, we'll dive in by looking at verses 1 through 13, plan A and plan B. Absalom's going to be presented with two different options on what to do next. Verse 1, moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight, right now. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ahithophel is on a roll. Uh, Absalom loved his advice uh, about the whole pitch a tent on the roof business. And so he figures, well, I'm going to keep going. I've got another idea for you, king. So he keeps pushing forward. Well, he does, though, remember, have a dog in the fight. He has an agenda, Ahithophel does. He, he wants to punish David in addition to, or actually by way of establishing his son Absalom as king. And as we have mentioned a few times now, as we've spoken to, uh, Absalom had no trouble defecting to, uh, away from King David to his son Absalom as he is, he is still carrying bitterness over Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, and the shame that was brought, the embarrassment to his family and household. He's lost respect for David, and so uh, he is harboring a grudge. And this is an opportunity to get even. It's, it's politically astute, strategically it's smart, but it's also very personal for Ahithophel. And did you notice his plan, Ahithophel's? This is really about him. Uh, he says to David, let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him. I will strike only the king. I will bring him back, uh, bring back rather all the people to you. Absalom's not even included in this. Ahithophel means to kill David himself. He wants to carry out the act. But apart from his selfishness and bitterness, is this a good idea? I mean, Absalom himself liked it. Verse 4 says it pleased both he and the elders. It's bold. David has just barely escaped or escaping. He's, he's likely off balance, probably discouraged, and not really sure what's next. Absalom is being advised by Ahithophel to track him down now Wipe him out and only him. What we would describe today as a surgical strike. Remove the problem and any chance of rebellion will be gone. And I think Ahithophel was likely correct. Had Absalom acted on this plan, it probably would have worked. Efficient and effective. But before we move on, because we are, after all, looking at a plan A and then also a plan B... I think there's something more to consider here. Just as we think about and examine Ahithophel and his motivations, the part, the role that he plays in this story, bitterness, unforgiveness, carrying unresolved offenses, hate, had brought Ahithophel to a place where he was willing to help the enemy. He was comfortable risking division and pain 
to the kingdom of Israel, all to satisfy his need to avenge himself, to pay David back. Think about that. Bitterness will do the same in your lives and mine. We can very easily find ourselves doing the enemy's bidding, sowing seeds of division in the kingdom of God, when in fact he's called you and I to be peacemakers. Consider the warning given us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. That's pretty, that's pretty broad. Without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Bitterness holding on to a grudge the need to be right even, rather than forgiving, moving on, standing in the grace of God. We could take it a step further and say not taking ourselves so seriously. It'll cause defilement and hurt to the body of Christ. Don't let it. I'm reminded of a quote from Pastor Chuck Smith. When the body of Christ is divided... Pray tell who bleeds. The picture, the contrast between David recognizing that division was coming and not wanting to be party to it, not wanting to contribute to it, and humbly leaving, as opposed to Absalom, who only cared about himself, Ahithophel likewise, not concerned about the pain to the work, to the kingdom of God, to the people of God. Don't allow yourself to join that company of those who in the interest of the furthering of their own agenda and kingdom and purposes will see division before unity. It's the work and people of God who are hurt in that process and the spirit of God who is grieved be a peacemaker. Now, what will Absalom do? How's he going to respond to Ahithophel's advice? Will he release Ahithophel to take out this uh, or, or, or execute this plan that he's established with these 12,000 soldiers, him at the head? Uh, or will he reconsider? Remember... God is working behind the scenes here to slow this insurgent rebel down. Our message is titled, Not So Fast, or for some of you, No So Fast. Um, either way, God, maybe he's saying, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do with the alternative title. But anyway, God's slowing things down here. And he moves the king to ask for a second opinion. I mean, there is, after all, wisdom in a multitude of counselors, right? And, and there is, by the way, we learned last week, another counselor, an advisor from David's inner circle. Remember, Hushai, he wanted to leave with King David, and David said, no, Hushai, you stay back and offer your allegiance to Absalom. And, and, and in doing so, I want you to act as a spy because Ahithophel, he's wise, and, and I'm in trouble if... if no one is there to counter his wisdom. So I want you to do that in the report, report to me through the priests what Absalom is planning. And that's exactly what happens here. Well, Absalom is reminded that Hushai is in the courts of the king. And so he calls for him and says, well, Ahithophel, I like your plan, but excuse me a moment. I'm going to consult with Hushai and find out what ideas he has. And in verse 5, Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite and let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. This is perfect, right, for David. For Hushai. Hushai is going to be able to listen now to all of Ahithophel. Okay, this is what Ahithophel is telling you to do. All right, okay. Absalom asks him, shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. What do you think? Hushai now knows exactly what plan A is. And he realizes that David's in trouble. 
So to counter this plan, he comes up with another one to buy the king more time. And, and as great as Ahithophel's advice is, really, it's smart. And as I said before, it, it very likely would have worked. Who's shy, though? He knows Absalom. And he appeals to Absalom's ego. And, and, he, and he paints a little bit more of, of a dramatic picture. He uses illustrative language that, that sidesteps Ahithophel's plan, which probably would have been very successful. Well, we read, Hushai came to Absalom. Absalom spoke to him. He says, what are your ideas? And in verse 7, we read that Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. Hushai says, Ahithophel, he's, he's a really smart guy. He's wise. And I can see that this is a good plan, but it, this just isn't quite the right time for that approach. Oh, oh, king. For said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Ahithophel his advice has in mind David kind of almost with a walker making his way over the hills, which is probably pretty, pretty accurate. And, and Hushai, he's got this image of David, you know, no shirt on and like a Rambo bandana. And he's going to just take us all out if we try to go after him. And he, really, he appeals to David's past more than his present. Absalom, Hushai says to the king, here's the problem. Your dad, he spent all those years in the desert. He's a warrior. He, he spent so much time on the battlefield. Oh, he's running, but, but he'll pivot on a dime, ready to take an exact vengeance against you. He's going to be mad. In fact, he's probably already separated himself from his soldiers, and he's hiding somewhere. You're not going to be able to find him anyway. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to send your soldiers after him. They're going to encounter David's men. A few of them are going to die. And you know what, Absalom? Word's going to spread that your men are already dying. They can't find David. The, the nation's loyalties will turn back to David, and all will be lost. I have a better idea. Absalom's concerned now. He's worried and he thinks, oh, Hushai, you're probably right. What do you think we should do? Therefore, verse 11, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude. And that you go to battle in, you can almost hear a soundtrack starting up. Behind Hushai, this national anthem is playing, all right? And, and, and we have a lot of you and Absalom and the nation around you. It's this moment of glory, Absalom. Take your time. No hurry. Let's, let's gather everybody together. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. It's this idea of just like a wave coming and covering David. What We don't need to chase after him right now. We'll have this overwhelming support and we'll just wipe him out. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, may, maybe he has, maybe he's hiding somewhere or he finds some place to strengthen himself, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we'll pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. This plan makes sense to Absalom and appeals to his ego again. Hushai uh, uh, has done a better job of selling than Ahithophel did. Ahithophel, he's probably more, Ahithophel is thinking about himself. Hushai knows he needs to come up with a plan that is weighted heavily on Absalom being in the spotlight. This, this plan brings the nation, coalesces them behind 
Absalom. David won't stand a chance. And even if he puts up a fight or is hard to defeat, Absalom will allegedly have this vast army at his disposal. Together, they'll remove any obstacle and capture David. Absalom at the center. It makes him the hero. It's a little bit more conservative. It's a little bit more of a slow and methodical approach. But again, it's, it's more attractive to Absalom. Rather than a quick mission where Ahithophel's the hero, in this version of the story, Absalom gets to go on a national tour, gathering support, and then with a newly raised army, he leads the charge against David, slaying him with more than enough support. And all of Absalom's advisors applaud. Sounds great, but again, there's just one problem here. Ahithophel's advice was actually good and would have worked. Hushai's will only give David time to orient himself, strengthen his armies, and prepare for battle, which was exactly what Hushai was looking to accomplish. Now, a quick question for us. This intervention of Hushai, the fact that Absalom was moved to ask for a second opinion, was this just all happenstance, good luck, karma, uh, that, that Absalom happens to do this, to ask. Why might Absalom have questioned Ahithophel's counsel? Well, I want to remind us, two chapters ago, we read that David prayed. In chapter 15, verse 31, then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And in a moment, verse 14 will tell us that this, in fact, what we've read, Hushai's counsel in contrast to Ahithophel's was in direct answer to prayer. It's a reminder for you and I that God answers prayer. I think all of us have found ourselves in situations where we're outnumbered, where maybe someone has betrayed us, someone's turned against us, where we're fearful, where, where we're concerned that, that we're going to lose, that evil's going to prevail. And sometimes we pray and our prayers are a little bit, a little bit meek, a little bit weak, where we're, we're sort of trepidatious in the spirit, like is, can, can God really move in this way? Is, is deliverance going to get anybody ever... Pray that way, like, oh, Lord, if you could, but you're probably not going to, and I don't know why I'm going to pray. I'm just going to give up. And we, that's kind of our attitude. I think this scenario, it reminds us God hears our prayers. And, and, and a minority plus God is always the majority. It doesn't matter the resources. It doesn't matter the, the insights that the enemy has. When, when God is for us, none can be against us. But the encouragement and the truth that's present here is that David prayed and he was trusting the Lord. Are you and I praying? Are we asking and inviting God into these scenarios? Because too often we just give up. We're discouraged. We're overwhelmed. How easy it would have been for David to not believe that God would answer. Think about it. He's not on the mountaintop. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. He, he's on the run again. And this time, you know, he's old. He's not young David. He's, he's like, man, the young, the young guy who's got it going on has, has stolen the hearts of the nation. I think it's very possible that David left the city and thought, I'm never coming back. But he held on to the Lord. He trusted God in that dark and difficult place. To judge the outcome based on what he could see and, and know with his senses. It would have been easy to do that. It's easy for us. Rather than trust the unseeable God who is ever working behind the scenes, beyond what can be seen. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think one of the greatest encouragements to, to diligent secret prayer is when God rewards us openly. 
Have you had that experience where you've prayed for something? You prayed for something privately, especially so. And God answers specifically. I've had that experience. I know many of you have as well. It's such a powerful encouragement where it's like, how did God know that specific amount? God knew because I asked him. He knows because he's aware. He sees. How did it work out that way? The timing. The, the, the answer that fits so perfectly. Jesus very clearly taught in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, Will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I think it's easy to dismiss prayer as unnecessary in the light of God's sovereignty. And some of us can be guilty of allowing our theology to get in the way of God's clear instruction in his word. Why pray when he already knows what I need? Why pray when he's in control of everything? He's going to have his way anyway, right? We pray because he's asked us to. We pray because scripture tells us we have not because we ask not. It's part of his plan for intertwining intercession and our needs with relationship with him. It's how he has purposed to work, where, where we live in this place of dependence, desperate dependence on him. So what is Absalom determined to do? What decision does the would-be king make? Plan A or plan B? Well, we read in the next few verses that he, in fact, takes the bait. Verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Isn't that interesting? It was God's predetermined will, and yet we see that David prayed. David asked the Lord, and God is working. It was his plan to protect the king from harm. Verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the, lead, the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David. This is, this is David's reconnaissance network, his spies. Hushai, having given the contrary counsel to Absalom, and he having taken it, now goes to the priests and says, Here's what's happening. Do not spend, go and tell David, Zadok and Abiathar, you've got to send this message quickly. Don't spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. He, he tells them, look, you guys have to hurry. And you've got to tell David, get out of town fast. Ahithophel's given him the advice to strike now. <laughs> Sorry, I just had a Cobra Kai moment there. <laughs> strike hard. Anyway, hurry, get at it now. But there's this lingering advice of Ahithophel's in contrast to Hushai's. He says, I, I, yeah, Absalom, he's determined to take my advice, which is slow and, and waiting. Who knows what he's going to end up doing? It could end up being a mixture. I'm not sure. David, I think you've got time, but you don't have a whole lot of time. Run. Verse 17, now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at Enrogel and Jonathan and Ahimehaz were the sons of Abiathar and Zadok. So here's this priestly network, all right? And they're staying out at the outskirts of town. That's where Enrogel was. That was a, um, a spring at the edge of the city. For they dared not to be seen coming into the city. So a female servant, she's a part of this whole spy network as well. A female servant would come and tell them and they would go and tell King David. That was what was set up in place. The high priest would tell the servant. The servant would go out to the edge of the city, 
to this house where Jonathan and Ahimehaz were staying, and then they, from that distanced from the palace position, would then sneak away and find David and let him know what was going on. Verse 18, nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. So very likely that this new kingdom under Absalom's leadership, it's in its infancy, and there probably were rumors and concerns over people still loyal to David, and this kid probably along with lots of others are, are looking to kind of, you know, tattle on their neighbors who's, who's got a David flag in their house or who is still a loyalist to the old king. This kid, he's kind of suspicious. Maybe he notices this woman slipping out to the edge of town. Maybe she knows that he knows that she works with the, with the high priest, sees her go out to this town at the edge of the city, notices the sons are there, thinks, why aren't they at the temple with their parents? I'm just going to kind of investigate this a little bit and thinks there might be something to this. I'm going to report this. Jonathan and Ahimehaz learn that they've been spied on and, and they run further out to this house in Bahurim where they jump down into a hole that then gets covered up and then they throw some, some grain and things like that over it so they're protected. The woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread grain on it, and the thing was not known. They hid the two men, the spies. So Absalom's men uh, arrived to investigate. I mentioned that a moment ago. I got a little ahead of myself there. Verse 20, and when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, I guess I didn't get ahead of myself. It was the servant that saw, and then he went back to Absalom, and then Absalom sends his men to investigate. What's going on here? Is there something I need to be concerned about? And they said, where are Ahimehaz and Jonathan that Absalom's servants saw? Where are the two sons of the priests? Why were they seen this far out of town? Why aren't they at the temple? Where are they? So the woman said to them, they have gone over the water brook. Well, they were here, but they went over the water brook. And we would assume she pointed in the opposite direction from which they were about to head. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. So they looked around. They couldn't find them. They go back and tell Absalom, look, we, we don't see uh, Ahimehaz or Jonathan. We weren't able to find them. Verse 21, now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went into and told, excuse me, and went and told King David. So after Absalom's two servants left, the woman uncovered the hole. They hopped out and ran out to the wilderness out to the Jordan plain to find King David and his men and said to David, arise and cross over the water quickly. They said, you better get over the Jordan, get to the other side and run. For thus has Ahithophel advised against you. Now remember, Absalom liked Hushai's advice, but nobody's taking any chances here. And it would turn out that it appears Absalom did take in large part Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's, but just the same. Nobody wants to take any chances here. Verse 22. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now we'll wrap things up as we look at the last seven verses. Lots is happening here at the end of this chapter. Verses 23 through 29. Death waiting for war and friendship. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, Ahithophel, remember, this is, this is the guy that's bitter against King David. This is the guy that wants to see him dead, wanted to carry out the act himself. When he saw that Absalom was following Hushai's advice, he saddled a donkey, arose and went to his house, to his city, put his household in order, and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Wow. Now, was this just like an extreme tantrum? Like you read and go, man, this guy was really serious about having his opinion followed. I mean, uh, no. More likely because he knew it was the only plan that would work, and he understood that Hushai's counsel was doomed to fail 
that time would only strengthen David and that Absalom would certainly be defeated. Ahithophel saw the writing on the wall. He said, Absalom's going to be removed and David will be king again. Rather than suffer humiliation at the very least, imprisonment and very possibly and likely death, Ahithophel takes his own life. It's really, it's a tragic footnote of a, a life twisted toward evil, in large part because of a refusal to humble himself and to forgive, an unwillingness to let go of the past. And I want to point out, it's not as though David hadn't humbled himself. It's not as though David hadn't repented. He had. David grieved over his sins. The nation suffered, and he suffered and continued to suffer personally. We need to be careful about not holding on to things that, that others have committed that God's already forgiven. The damage and the danger of unresolved conflict like this can't be underestimated. It, it can handicap and hinder us in life. It, it can disable our ability to grow and, and walk in a healthy way before the Lord and to be used by him. It's so important that we let go of offenses, our insistence that we're right, and our need to prove a point or punish someone who has crossed us far better to release it. Turn your eyes on Jesus, purpose to be taken with him rather than to be obsessed with the past. We're called to be a people who forget those things which are behind and press forward to what lies ahead. And very often we think of that in terms of sins that we committed. But, but what about offenses committed against us? Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward those things which are, allowing that to be under the blood of Jesus so that we can be freed to move forward. I've spoken extensively in, in the past, and I will again in the future. We're not going to go into detail and depth. Doesn't mean Ahithophel had to be David's best friend. <laughs> I, I'd probably look at him a little bit, you know, <laughs> sideways going forward too, not total trust. But there's a difference between that and, and holding a grudge. And that was Ahithophel's problem. We read in Colossians 3, verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, loving, or long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Here's another one of those places where periodically I'll say, if this is a struggle for you, write this verse down, memorize it, commit it to memory, and, and rehearse it. This is one of those places where we take captive thoughts, take them captive to the obedience of Christ, and, 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 and speak and declare God's truth over our own personal problem and struggle. We need to do that in, in those relationships and struggles that we have with those that have hurt us, past pain. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ also forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You can't tell me that you have peace when you're holding bitterness against someone. I know that because I've held bitterness against Someone, <laughs> a few someones in my life and times. We don't have peace when that's the case, do we? Because we're constantly wrestling with how God's justice needs to be meted out against that person. Really, Pastor Ann, you struggle with that? It was many, many years ago, but <laughs> vaguely remember it <laughs> for your sake. I'm remember it. No, I'm just kidding. Sometimes it's a daily exercise, right? Bringing, uh, the, the enemy brings it forward, our own flesh, and again, we bring it under the blood of Jesus, and we say, Lord, I don't want to hold on to that. 
I've been forgiven. I want to forgive them. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, which is then able to rule over us when we commit it again to the Lord, when we commit that person to the Lord. Ahithophel could have done that. He could have said, Lord, David's in your hands. He's your son. He's your king. You're the judge. You're the one he has to answer to. I'm going to worry about my walk with you. The Lord would have said, thank you, Ahithophel. I will handle it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing in, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You want to know how to do this, how to live it? Man, make room for God's word in your heart. The more of, of God, uh, the word of Christ, the more of the presence of Christ that's in your life, the less room for all that other stuff. such that grace wells up out of your life, out of your heart, and you're freed to praise the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And and let's just recognize that holding on to bitterness cannot be done in the name of Jesus Christ. It can't. But it sure can be done in the power of the flesh. And it'll bring with it all the terrible consequences, division and pain that come to our lives and the body of Christ when we choose to grieve the Holy Spirit in that way. Now, David is well on his way. He's been given this head start. Verse 24, then David went to Mahanaim. This is the a city that was roughly the midway point between Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south, and it was uh, just on the other side, east of the Jordan River. And Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom is pursuing, though. Time has passed here, all right? Absalom, he's, he's gone from north to south. He's moved across the land. Everyone knows he's king, and, and he is asking for those that would come with him to fight against David to join him. And his armies are growing. But what we're also going to find is that David's armies have grown. And we would assume Hushai's plan that Absalom is following also accomplished something else. Because remember Ahithophel's advice that Absalom would act out in in that dominating, sexually abusive way on the palace rooftop, probably conjuring David's own sin with Bathsheba, that grotesque act would make its way through the nation, wouldn't it? And everybody's going to have to wrestle with this new king, Absalom. We thought we knew Absalom. He, He was such a kind, caring man. He listened to our problems, told us that he would listen to us. He just, he's such a good looking guy. And, and, and now he does this. David, David messed up, but, but David humbled himself. David was a man after God's own heart. And they're having to wrestle with who do we go with? The, the guy that the popular opinion polls are spiking on, or, or David, who, who was that sweet shepherd of Israel. David, who always put the kingdom before himself, and when he failed, he wasn't afraid to admit it. Well, what we're going to find is that when Absalom's armies do face off with David, he himself has a sizable contingency of those who have come over to join him. Verse 25, and Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. Joab was the commander of David's armies, and so Absalom appoints Amasa. And Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead, that area in uh, that midsection east of the Jordan. Well, we're given some family history here on Amasa, but needless to say, this was David's nephew, Absalom's first cousin, the commander of David's armies, which are now once again joining up in battle lines 
not really battle lines, but they're preparing to fight one another in that area near Mahanaim. But before the battle unfolds, we learn of some more visitors to David here at the end of this chapter 17. Now it happened, verse 27, when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rohelim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curd, sheep and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. They didn't have time or resources or the ability to pack all this stuff up and, and get ready. They just had to run. David was at a great disadvantage. And in this moment come three unlikely friends. Shobai. This guy is especially interesting. This is the brother of the young king that David had to fight back in chapter 10. You remember that? It was the king of the Ammonites had died and his young son, brother of Shobai, ruled in his place. Well, David wanted to establish friendship with the kingdom of Ammon. And so he sent counselors to express his condolences. And the prideful young king reacted and responded violently and, and with disrespect, distrusting David, and it caused war. And here Shobai is, befriending the king. Just because your family and friends engaged in a foolish feud with someone doesn't mean you have to, too. This brother remembered the friendship and the kindness that had been shown, the, the relationship that had been established with his father. Knew David was gracious. It thought, I, I want to help David. Bury the axe, heal, and move on. Get on board with God, where he's working, and what he is doing. This man, Shobai, he had a kingdom perspective. He could have been all about Ammon. He could have thought, oh, yeah, David's getting weakened. Let's, let's join Absalom and fight against him. Finish the score. Now, he saw beyond himself. He wasn't trying to build his own kingdom. He was trying to build the kingdom of the Lord. Now we have this Machir. This was a servant to Mephibosheth, whose lead servant we met last week likely lying about his master, Saul's grandson, to secure power and position for himself. While well, that man, Ziba, Mephibosheth's lead servant, made out with Mephibosheth's property. We, we saw that last week again. He probably lied to, Abs, to David, excuse me, and, and David maybe rashly just believed what Ziba had to say and David granted Mephibosheth all of his property. Machir is a servant to Ziba. Rather than look to benefit himself, instead he separates from his boss, and I think that speaks to the condition of his heart. His, his not looking to gain, a, a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. Ziba comes to David with his hand out, like, well, how can I fool the king and get something for me? Makir looks at the desperation of David's situation and says, how can I help right now? He simply wants to support the work of the kingdom. He was a giver. And he wanted to give to God's work and his people. Lastly, there's this Barzillai. He was a wealthy man. We're going to see that in chapter 19. In fact, he would continue to underwrite this season in David's life, providing the support that David needed in this interim period before he was restored to the throne. He's a model and reminder for us to take care that the resources that we have are invested in eternal works. Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus spoke these words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, for each of these men, how natural, how logical would it have been to say, man, things are kind of topsy-turvy right now, and we don't know which way this is going to turn out. Absalom, David, how's this going to affect my portfolio? No. They said, we want to be on the side of God's work, and that's where we're going to be invested. They had an eye to eternity. And they said, Lord, win or, or lose. We're, we're, we want to invest our resources with your work. These men, though unlikely, because all three of them were in one way or another, came to David at a time when he needed them most. They were concerned about whether or not they're, they, they weren't concerned about whether or not their background or history was a problem. They simply wanted to support the king and be invested in the kingdom. God used them greatly in, in a time when it would have been far easier to look out for themselves, to act in their own interests, and it's tempting to do that, isn't it? But we're called in faith to give, to love, to serve, at times to our own hurt. Times where we know the Spirit of God is saying, I want you to step out and serve in that way. I want you to give in that way. I want you to invest when it would be easier to not. When, when maybe in our own hearts we're going, I need, I need investment right here. I need to cover my own rear end at this moment. God's like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of your rear end. I'm sorry, that does not sound very reverent, but Proverbs 17, we'll just move on. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friendship that, that takes risk for God's people and his work is one that will be blessed. How especially important acts of kindness and practical helps are in these dark places in life. Dark nights of the soul look to be that kind of friend to God's people and his kingdom.